Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod. When you're here, you're family. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I've got another interview that I conducted when I was in Italy last month with food historian Karima Moyer. Her new book, just out, is The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome. And the book before that is called Chewing the Fat, An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita. I lived in Rome. I did my last year of college there and then returned the following year for another chunk of time. Uh, I traveled extensively in Italy, but I, Rome was my home for uh, a year and a half, two years-ish. So the city has a lot of meaning for me. Um, it's the first place that I really learned to cook and eat. I fell in love there. I learned a language there. I had a lot of profound experiences and also settled really comfortably into a nice life where I shopped and cooked and functioned as a Roman person of sorts um, within the constraints of the academic and employment situations that had me there in the first place. And so that familiarity with the daily fabric of Roman life has stayed with me. And every time I go back, I make a point of spending a few days there, uh, most recently in, at the beginning of the two uh, culinary tours of Umbria that I did. I spent four or five days in Rome hanging out, seeing friends, but also just kind of living, walking around and being there. It's not a place I really imagine living again because I'm not such a city guy anymore. I really enjoy peace and quiet and having a garden, but it's a powerful place for me and I really love being there. So I was lucky to record uh, three interviews on my most recent trip, two of them in Rome and one of them, this one, uh, with Karima Moyer, up at Civitella Ranieri where these culinary tours of mine have been based. Uh, which is an amazing 15th century castle overlooking the town of Umbertide. In season, in the warm months, it hosts an artist's residency program. And in the cooler shoulder seasons, they have a couple of slots for other uh, group activity situations. So there's plein air painting and my cooking thing, and other groups come and take advantage of the incredible site and setting to do the things that they love most. I met Karima last November on the first Umbria tour. She came and gave us a lecture on pasta and the Italian identity. She gave another version of that lecture to this group. And right before the lecture started, she and I spent an hour in my apartment in what they call Castrabecco, which is the barn farmhouse up the hill from the castle with a stunning view of the valley on two sides. And we talked about the new book and a little bit about the older book and a little bit about what's to come and some of the issues that she and I both feel are facing Italian cooking right now, specifically Roman food and the, the distorting pressure that tourism can put on a country's cuisine and a lot of other stuff. She's uh, super bright. Uh, the new book is great. Uh, highly recommended for anyone who's interested in Italian food beyond, you know, the cookbook space, as people who are not me might say. So check it out. Check her out. She's 
Karima Moyer on Instagram. She's on Facebook. And her books are available wherever you buy books. And they're worth buying. So here's me talking to Karima Moyer on the hill above Civitella Ranieri in Umbertide in March. Peter. Hello. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, gosh. I know. I'm so, I feel really fortunate to, like, it's, this is now my third time back in Italy in 18 months, which is mm-hmm, pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book just came out, right? Like a week ago? What's the official? What was the um, official? Yeah, it was March 8th. It March came 8th. out. I was really glad that it came out on Women's Day. Oh, um, that's right. Not that it has anything to do with women in particular, but um, me being a woman, I guess, that yeah, was, uh, yeah. um, and women's achievements and things, and so... Yeah, I was, I was just, I was thrilled. It was great, yeah. It's really exciting. Congratulations. I'm glad this worked out in terms of timing. Um, so I'm interested in starting kind of where you started in terms of, you know, where you come from and, and you know, early culinary influences and things that sort of maybe pointed you in the direction that you ended up. Uh, if you want to sort of go back to where, okay, you, grew, where so, you grew up or whatever. Um, yeah, I was uh, born in a place that has nothing to do with anything. My, my, my dad had gone to North Dakota, and um, we ended up not staying there. It was too cold, um, I, but I just happened to be born while they were for, there for a brief time. So, um, And so I was raised in Toledo, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and another, you had another guest who... Roscoe, oh, yeah. who was also raised in Ohio, mm-hmm. who said exactly the same thing that a lot of people from Ohio say that it's a place you want to get away from. Yeah. And um, so what people talked about in Toledo was getting out of Toledo. Yeah. So I'm from Toledo, Ohio, which, which of course has um, been emblazoned on the memories of people through Elvis Costello yeah. um, and Burt Bacharach. Um, yeah, so raised there, and I've thought about the food thing and have started writing my uh, kind of a food memoir, thinking, thinking that I was going to make it into a cookbook, but I have such a dreadful um, childhood and growing up um, that's the kind of thing that, that it kind of doesn't blend well with food, in addition to stories about anyone's grandmother or mother or yeah. whatever I don't have that with um my my father cooked and he was an awful cook and he didn't like flavor mm-hmm. I guess yeah. <laughs> to the blanket sort of thing so um, it was awful anything, culinarily or also just sort of well personally? it was awful it was awful in that he kind of believed in in canned foods and Fleshman's margarine and um, dressing a salad meant that you put Crisco oil and and white vinegar on it. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, there was even salt and pepper. He had a complete aversion for onions and garlic. And was this just a function of like kind of being a Midwesterner from that time? Yeah, because, um, because, I mean, you can't see me on the podcast, but... um, (laughs) 
I'm dark complected and and so people always say, Oh, what are your origins? Okay, so I'm I'm half Indian mm-hmm. origin. My both of my parents were Americans. Half Indian origin and then half um um German ish kind of people. Okay. And so that's how I was raised because I wasn't raised with my mother. I didn't know any of that Indian part. I didn't know any of her family mm-hmm. was raised with um by him. And and so in that sort of atmosphere, and there was there was no really cooking thing that ever went on right. that I was party to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember when I was in first grade, and I got this, I got a cookbook for my birthday with a little birthday party, and I got this cookbook, and I just thought it was the most magical thing. Yeah, with um, images of little dogs running with strings of sausages in their mouth. And, uh, um, and I, I read it and read it and read it. I never actually cooked anything out of it, but mm-hmm. I thought it was just food was so much about love. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, kind of made that connection there. Um, but my, as with, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts, and as there's so many things that, that I think food people maybe lock into. One of your guests, if yeah. I can call them that, um, yeah, sure. a, has a background in theater, mm-hmm. um, which I also have a background in theater, and but not in acting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my background in theater was in design, just like you did fine arts. Right, so and, set to scene design. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so costume and set design. Right. Um, and... But I really feel like that attraction to theater, even though I didn't do acting, um, and had had always had that attraction to theater. I wrote stupid little plays when <laughs> I was in elementary school, and sure. um, and and started in ballet and things as a as a young child. But the study of it, because then I went on and did um, did my MFA at UMass Amherst. In dramaturgy, which okay. a writing and, um, Where, and, sorry. and research degree. Where did you do the BA? Um, in Toledo. In to- so you were in. So you, you didn't get out of Toledo till grad school. I didn't get out of Toledo till grad school. Okay. Um, but because my father was a, a sociologist, taught at the University of Toledo, and ah, okay. so would not pay for me to go anywhere sure. else. Um, my tuition was free, yeah, and so no. you don't give up free. No, no. So, um, and you studied theater undergrad as well, or theater? I, I studied, I did theater design as theater an undergrad, design, okay. and then went on to do dramaturgy as my MFA. Okay. Okay. And, but that I think is, it's not that it's so much about food, it so prepared me for the way I live food. Mm-hmm. Um, because theater is anthropology, sociology, art history, history in general, literature, um, uh, philosophy, psychology. It's also ephemeral and kind of a spectacle, which meals can, you know, also can be. Right, right. And, right, and it's it's one of the ephemeral arts as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So, but in addition to that, having a father who is a sociologist, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of my approach to food and the way that I, the way that I write, the way that um, I see food as really, uh, it's the base of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it's probably wrong that it's not the base of everything, but, but 
it feels that way to me. Well, I, I mean, see it's, food it's certainly, and everything. given its necessity, it's certainly as fundamental as anything else yeah. to human culture and civilization. But, but and, and the development then of cuisine and um, how the agricultural things, advancements then allowed there to be the development of culture. And mm-hmm. so food is always at the base and then relationships. Um, I was uh, listening to, to um, another podcast mm-hmm. uh, today about prehistoric globalization and how needing to go out and find a mate, um, another a marriage partner, yeah. kind of moved seeds along mm. in the world. Um, so, so everything is at the base of that and, and community and being together and conviviality, establishing social structure, um, who was going to eat what and who wasn't going to eat and who was going to toil and who didn't do anything. And, right. um, so, so anyway, so f- food kind of is all of that to me. And got into that through, with my father as a sociologist at home, talking to him was being lectured in sociology. Right. That was, that was kind of the, maybe the way he liked to relate to everything, but it was, it, it, they were sociological talks, mm-hmm. lectures, mm-hmm. always. So. And so how, um, you know, you, you were writing plays as a kid and you mm-hmm. studied, um, theater was the thing you studied twice in school, and then you got to Massachusetts, which is, even if it's Amherst, it's still somewhat more cosmopolitan, I guess, maybe, than Ohio. It's well, certainly different. Well, okay, okay. And this is um, actually different from what I thought it was going to be. I couldn't wait to get out of Toledo and go to an East Coast school. Right. Um, I was th- thrilled to get into uh, an assistantship at, at UMass. And um, and I do have a very strong affinity for, for New England. Mm-hmm. But... I didn't realize when I was in Toledo that, um, except for maybe I, I, Seattle, I think it is, um, there are more restaurant restaurants pro capita in Toledo than in any other U.S. city, or it wow. was like that for a while. Wow. I mean, they're just it's it's caked with that because there's not basically nothing else to do, um, and uh, supermarkets and 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 restaurants, hmm. but. Um, so many different, also, even though this word is going out, ethnic restaurants, particularly because the University of Toledo had an important engineering school, a lot of Middle Eastern food. Uh-huh. Middle Eastern food was just everywhere in huh. Toledo. And I have you know, a favorite Middle Eastern restaurant, the Beirut, that I like to mention whenever I can. Yeah. Um, still there. It's still there, Excellent. yeah. Same menu it's ever, oh, it's That's always great. had. But but just and I thought that certainly I was going to find that and more mm-hmm. uh, on the East Coast and then and and didn't. And you were we're talking what early nineties that you're there for grad school? Um, yeah, late right late eighties early nineties. Yeah, right, I mean Mass- right, right, I'm from right. Massachusetts. And oh, okay. it's provincial as hell. So you know, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. when you get outside of Boston, and even Boston is certainly has, let's say, idiosyncratic you know kind of backwater aspects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that you, you left Toledo and ended up somewhere that was actually dramatically less diverse in a lot of ways. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but um, dramatically less diverse and, and yet um, just a, a sigh of relief of a, um, the pro- also progressive mindset 
um, much more open, culturally much more willing, um, I don't want to say advanced, but willing. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it was what I was looking for, but certainly not in, in food. Right. Certainly right. not in food. Yeah. It's, all right, so how did you get from an MFA in uh, theater design and dramaturgy to, uh, to being a, you know, a, a, let alone a, a sort of a food person, right? Because I watch what you cook and, and I, I love all the bread baking you've been doing lately <laughs> and things like that. that. That obviously anybody can sort of, you know, fall into a, a, a passionate home-cooked practice, mm-hmm. regardless of your, of your mm-hmm. métier. But, but so how did you then make it to culinary historian with what is now a pretty um, impressive CV? I would say that um, what I was working on in, okay, before I left Toledo, I started working at the Toledo Opera, mm-hmm. um, working as a assistant stage manager uh, and, and other kinds of things um, at the Toledo Opera. Really fell in love with opera. I had I had studied French, and just completely had this changeover to to Italian whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, meeting Italians who then came to the Toledo Opera to um, to conduct or play or sing. Uh, and, and that was just such a wonderful world to me that when I then went to UMass, I had to have a part of the, the, the dramaturgy degree is having a language to translate. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to get out of French and into Italian. Okay. Um, just so in love with the opera. And so the, the second semester that I was at UMass, I, I had to, I, I started with intensive Italian and um, really just needed to scramble and learn Italian so that I could get up to that level and, right. and went and spent a semester in Siena. Oh, fantastic. Um, at which point then I found out that all of these ideas that I had about Italy were, were pretty much wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, the, the, the fantasy of, of, which maybe this is a French one because the Italians say this about the French people, you know, chucking a, a loaf of bread in your armpit and riding a bicycle and right. singing opera mm-hmm. while you're going home for, for lunch. Sure. Okay. In it's, France, it's a beret. In Italy, you probably that, a scarf instead. Right, yeah. right. So um, that just wasn't happening. And people were not singing the arias on the street while they were washing dishes. Right. Um, it was, it was a, a completely different thing. But captured my interest in a different way anyway yeah. so um when i then i can i continued on with that that the love of that and got my my degree in a, a did my thesis in the neapolitan dialect theater with a translation from neapolitan dialect um so then i I, you know, had always nurtured anyway a love a love for food anyway, yeah. but had not begun immersing myself in it, except that that's when I began to dig into Italian history, mm-hmm. um, and Italian language, and and had always loved languages as well, and then I decided that I wanted to have some time some time abroad after I finished my MFA and yeah. came to Italy. I thought I would stay two or three years, and then. Um, met someone and things started to come together um, and I started working at the, the, the University of Siena. So you came back to Siena when you came back? So, so right, I came back to Siena. Mm-hmm. Um, started and, and 
work there after 20, well, it's been 20 years. It took awesome. me several years to get in. It's a beautiful but, town. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorites. God, yeah. I mean, it, it just couldn't be any nicer, really. It's the jewel of Tuscany. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, and so the, the people are not very friendly. Mm. But, they get um, exposed to a lot. I mean, there's a lot of tourists in their face yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah, I do yeah. get that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but it, it, it really is um, just so beautiful. So, so what happened when I got there was I kind of went into, into shock because of the lack of availability of other foods, the mono culinary culture that it mm, was, yeah. even though when I had been here before, that's all that I wanted. But right. when I moved here... Um, wow, I needed to have other stuff. So we're talking mid-90s now? So, so now we're talking, yes, I'm, I moved here in 1991. And then, and spent a year in Florence. Moved to Siena then, yeah, so we're in 1993. So, so you were here right around the time I was. I did my first mm, okay. stint from 89 to 90 in Rome. Right, you were in Rome um, then. Yeah. Which is where I met Dana, which is why I'm sitting here right now. And... Um, then came back a year later uh, and ended up doing a bunch of things, but ended up at the British School. And I remember my favorite joke, I'm inclined to tell the same joke over and over again. My favorite joke back then was anytime we'd go out to eat, I'd say, you guys feel like Italian tonight? Because yeah. Yeah, there was just <laughs> right. no fucking yeah. other food to choose from, right. right? There was one Indian place in Trastevere, and other than that, yeah. th- that, it was, yeah. So I totally get what you're saying. There right. was a point where you're sort of like, wow, wouldn't it be great? you know, if we could get pretty much anything else. Right, right, just right. Just once right, in a while. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, in addition to just even the ingredients. So uh, what I did was my immersion in food at that point broke away from Italian food. And and I really dedicated myself to learning a lot of, of different cuisines. Mm-hmm. Um particularly Asian. I went through Indian, um, Vietnamese, Mexican, Thai. Uh, I, I wanted to be able to, needed to be able to do these things. And then Italians were kind of very curious as right. well. So you were teaching yourself who, to cook all these things. Uh, to, right. And a, as well as traveling to those countries to, to right. l- learn more about the, the particular ones that I enjoyed. But your um, home base was still Siena and, at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and I, and was, I, it, was it murderously hard to get those ingredients in Siena or even anywhere? Um, I had to go to Florence to get them. You did? Right, okay. right. So either when I went back to the States, I would load up the, the suitcase. And in fact, I've noticed... As the years go on, the loading up the suitcase is mm-hmm. less and less. Um, one, because I'm maybe less interested in what's going on right now in the States. Yeah, uh, can't imagine why. So, um, I mean, things that I don't recognize and I'm not even interested in, what's the cauliflower rice thing? Oh, God, for right? example. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I get if you're if you're like celiac and you want to... You know, I get that, but otherwise, like, what the? F- I mean, pizza's so good. Why would you make fake pizza with cauliflower? Right, right. And why and, would you do such? And a thing? all of the all of the fake kinds of you know artificial, but not because these are things that you find at, at Whole Foods. They're the Whole Foods artificial this that's taking place of the the little bean sticks that are taking place of I don't know what Twix or what are those things called? Those little cheese sticks. 
instructions for preparing the foods that are, you know, the, the, the boxes that can, can arrive at your house with all of the ingredients already there so that you can feel like you're preparing food. Right. Um, there's a, 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 a book that just came out, Pressure Cooker, about it. the pressure that people feel like they have to make decent yeah. food or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, it, it's a different, it's, a, it's another world for me. Because I reach back into, I think, listening to you as well, I mean, I want to ferment all my own stuff and to, yeah. and, and, uh, and sure, not right. everybody has that aptitude, Make that interest. Not bread, everyone right, has enough right. hours in the day. The time, right, right. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. And so, um, but I thought Asian food was going to then be my my be niche. Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it turned out not to be. Um, or it just sort of became part of the repertoire. But but you returned to Italian in some fundamental. Yeah, I way. returned to Italian, and 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 I listen to a lot of podcasts. I like podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. So something that I found was coming out of podcasts as time was going on, all of this, and memory became very important. Mm-hmm. Um, oral history then started to become more respectable. Uh, that that sort of looking at history and everyone talking about the grandmother mm-hmm. and my grandmother this and my grandmother that. And um, so at the same time, Living in Italy, I'm watching, watching as this happens because I've lived in Italy now for 30 years. Yeah. And um, I've been here long enough to watch the change and the deification of Italian food. Not that it's not one of the world's fine cuisines, but it, it, it becoming a heritage commodity. Sure. And the com- uh, the commodification of that, the rise of the nostalgia industry, um, heritage tourism, mm-hmm. which is very important to the Italian economy. Absolutely. Okay. Um, it also reinforces a sense of pride, which was very important for Italians to rebuild after World War II. Sure. Okay. So, um, and and you've got all of that going on at the same time. And everyone talking about the grandmother and not talking to the grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing that I, while, while I was saying, well, you know, it's not really like this. And, well, Artusi was actually a banker and etc. You know, fine piece of literature that. Mm-hmm. But um, things just seemed like they were getting so out of perspective. Mm-hmm. So... A lot of people make a lot of money on romanticizing Italy. It's a wonderful romantic. I mean, we're looking out the window yeah, here at just the most incredible it landscape. It is that beautiful. Okay. And the food is that good. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But um, it's an easy epiphany to have. I talked to Rachel Roddy who, um, uh, for this, but she kept landing back on the same point, that it's like everybody fucking comes here and has the same epiphany. 
you know, because it's so easy to have. Right, right, right. It right, changes right. your life. I, you right. eat an artichoke and oh my God, you know. I, we it, need to move here. Yeah. You eat an artichoke and uh, the, the, <laughs> the amount of times that I've heard people eat something and need to move here. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, is it, the li- life is so much different. And, right. and, it and, is, but having said yeah. that, I mean, you did move here and I lived here for a while and I'm back doing culinary tourism. Right, so it's right, like, right, you know, right, right. It, it's, uh, but yes, it does, um, it can get cookie cutter. It can also just be very superficial. And right. certainly the thing that you, you dig in way deeper than I do because you have um, a life here. But uh, I do try to do as much justice as I can to the realities of it and the complexities of it. And we talk about the legal framework yesterday, for example, we were talking about the legal framework of, of uh, IGT, DOC, DOCG, within which some natural winemakers work, within which others just say, fuck it, I can't do this anymore. And they just opt out of the naming system mm. and just you know, call themselves Vino da Tavola or whatever the region is. Uh, because then it, it exempts them from having to deal with all this bureaucratic right. bullshit. So I try to put things in that kind of perspective so people understand that it is hard work and it is a struggle uh, and there are dis- difficulties and the climate's changing and there's drought and... So anyway, you know, try to make it a little less like everything's perfect all the time, you know. Right, right. And and that's also it's difficult in that when you're when you are a um an immigrant, uh as I as I am, mm-hmm. and I reject the um label expat because that's about being white and having privilege. Mm-hmm. Um and so even though I'm, I'm American, um, uh, I'm allowed to be whitish mm-hmm. and, and allowed to call myself that and don't um, and, and, and seriously reject and, and find that a re- very regrettable sort of situation. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I live here. I don't have another home in another place. Mm-hmm. When the when they don't pass by and pick up the garbage uh, that I've set out on the you know because I live in the the centro storico and so mm-hmm. we set our garbage out and they pa- okay um, it pisses me off like it would anyone anywhere that they're that they're living right. and but if I complain about that to certain people then they'll start talking to me about Dante and Michelangelo mm-hmm. well. As if that okay. makes it okay that your but garbage hasn't been yeah, picked up. Yeah, yeah. Or somehow, um, and this is something that I think is a, is a global situation about this, this, the issues of, of immigration right now, mm-hmm. are, are that when you are in that new place, you are somehow subject to criteria and standards that, that people who were born here are not. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I'm supposed to appreciate and love everything, yeah. but, but, but I live here. Yeah. And 30 years, I mean, you know, granted, you don't look Italian. Um, not to them, yeah. I, I, people often, people are not Italians, often say, well, you, you look Italian. Mm-hmm. Well, not to Italians. No. Right. No. And, and uh, because it's a culture that, uh, until very recently, had a very low immigrant population. Mm-hmm. And um, it's certainly becoming more diverse. But... Uh, is there, there's, is, the, is it sort of like there's no point at which you suddenly, you get the secret stamp on your, you know, on your identity, secret identity passport, and everyone just assumes that you're a local now, or your friends and neighbors all treat you differently? I mean, because 30 years is a pretty long time. Yeah, 30 years is a long time, and people who know me, I mean, I think about this with my students, 
and have on occasion even said that to them because they're they're you know about you finish high school a little bit later here than than you do in the states. So mm-hmm. um, they're they're nineteen and twenty years old um, okay. when they start the university, and um, I've been in Italy longer than they have. Yeah. Okay. So at that that kind of thing. But how important are your formative years, and do they make you whatever? And certainly, um, I'm I'm bilingual, but I've got I've got a, a, an American accent. Sure. Um, I'm not going to lose that bit of me. To most people, you don't ever become now you're Italian. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and talking about this with some with some other people because because of a book that I have in mind, I have a couple of things in mind. Um, one is about this issue about being brown, you mm-hmm. know, but, but before I say that, okay, the Canadians have a term for immigrants there who then be, they're called new Canadians. That's great. And that's, I think that's such a lovely thing. Yeah, that's so Canadian, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah, so, yeah, it's so yeah. welcoming. We're just, you know, I'm a new Canadian, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You don't say I'm, I'm from blah, blah. Okay. Sure. And, and everyone wants to know, um, well, there's two questions. One is, where are you from? And so I always hit them with um, the United States. Right. And the second question is, if they, um, they want to know where I'm really from. Where you're really from means, why are you brown? Right. You know? Right. So, uh, and so I toy with them about that so that they, you know. Um, but if I can go off track a little bit sure, here. Yeah, yeah. But, but the brown thing... I'm finding really fascinating because I'm finding that there that I first started hearing this like on NPR people were using this word brown well and I had a had a little knee-jerk reaction to it and step back well not brown what's brown about and and there's you know there's the white and the there's the white and the black and experience and then well yeah brown is an experience that isn't white or black sure and um, even though there are so many of us in that brown category, mm-hmm. and it, it, the same thing can be said about white and people who, who manage to fit into that club. Right. It's made up of so many different things. Absolutely. And, and as, is, as is black. But um, so, so I, have, I also have a brown experience here. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is that which I don't get in the US is that um, first of all as an American everyone just assumes if they don't know me and what I do she doesn't know anything about food she doesn't know how to cook and I find people explaining things to me about food that that kind of um, you say in Italian that make my arms fall off does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah okay so um, and then because I'm brown, they expect me to know how to make some sort of food that relates to some sort of country where people are brown. Right. Something something but, exotic. Right. I'd say, right. Making scare quotes around the word. Right. Right. So it's a, 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 something exotic and ethnic and etc. And because I don't know anything about it, I was raised by the German father who were, right. were eating uh, bird's eye frozen broccoli with cheese sauce and, uh, yeah. y- you know, that sort of thing. That's how I was raised. It was the pot roast with carrots and potatoes, the roasted chicken with carrots and potatoes, sure. and um, that was Quintessentially food Quintessentially American yeah. food, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
so I don't have a, a brown thing that I know how to make. Right. And you weren't, and your mom wasn't around, so you weren't I, even, you didn't even learn anything at home. Right. From her it, neither her nor, nor did I know anything about anyone in her family. Mm. Um, and, but I also find it interesting that that's also the food that I'm really attracted to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the, also, I grew up in Toledo with a strong Middle Eastern kind of thing going right. on when I was at university. The the Indian food and the Vietnamese food and the you know uh, Middle Eastern food in particular and um, and and those are the flavors and tastes that that I'm really attracted to. Yeah. So I have been thinking about and considering writing a book about just because this whole immigrant thing it it, it just is completely out of control. A book about being here in Italy being an immigrant, being brown, and making Italian food work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in what way? In, in a way that I'm bringing other tastes to it and respecting what's here, but also looking at the other things that I have learned and, and was used to having as I, as I grew up, or not in my house, but um, in that in my environment, mm-hmm. but also okay. So so for example, making pasta, rolling out pasta with half um, durum wheat mm-hmm. and half um, masa harina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it holds together. Sure. It's really lovely. Has a wonderful corny taste. Yeah. Um, I make a, a, a then a, a, a mole for mm-hmm. it, a duck mole, mm-hmm. with some fermented Chinese black beans. Fantastic. Okay. That's great. That uh, sounds phenomenal. Yeah. I eat that and, right now. And, uh, <laughs> so so um, bringing those things together in, in, in my particular case, because I don't want to call it fusion. Fusion is... Wherever you are, taking a bunch of stuff and putting it together, and mm-hmm. but I'm taking my experience and where I live, and 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 bringing um, my experiences together, in addition to a world view about immigration that I would like to combat, mm-hmm. um, and um, thinking about calling it code switching cuisine or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You know. So so that's something. That's one of the things I wanted to. To cover with you, just because uh, you know more about it than anyone else I know, uh, but and I also want to get back to you know how you how you eventually ended up sort of teaching and writing books on this. But but you know we talked a little bit um, when we met last fall, mm. you know about this notion of authenticity and and, mm-hmm. and at your particular way into it because you don't look Italian and because um, you are an immigrant from America, which already has a very open source cooking and always has because we are, you know, this, this melting pot. And so there's been a lot of colliding cuisines now for, for quite some time in, in our home country. Um, but I'm interested in, um, and if you want to tie it to the, the accessibility of very many ingredients during the height of the Roman Empire versus um, what became later sort of codified as Italian cooking. So there was this big expansion and then kind of a contraction. Um, and I sort of feel like, you know, t- 20 years ago, we were maybe at the peak of people shopping everywhere around the world and bringing all ingredients into their food. And then that wave kind of broke and receded. And now we're getting, people are much more interested into the, in this sort of uber local 
um, you know, almost like the, the Nordic mm-hmm. foraging kind of approach to food, which has certainly informed a lot of what I do lately. But I'm just, if you see an echo in that, then, you know, feel free to, to elaborate. But I'm, I'm sort of interested in... Um, Can I just ask, yeah. who, who's we? Well, you and I as Americans. Okay. Uh, just okay. In, in, this new, in this world now that is f- fully globalized, certainly more okay. so than it's okay. ever been, where you have access to more stuff than you've ever had, and where there are now more different currents of cross-pollination happening all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you know about it in real time because you're following all these people on Instagram and you see you know, what crazy stuff they're doing in their restaurant or their home or whatever. And so I'm very interested in this question of you know, authenticity and the question of... You know, I don't particularly care if you, you know, I put red chili pepper in my amatriciana because it tastes better. I tend not to use onion because it really does push it in a different direction. But that's more just a taste thing than, than me worrying that the, you know, pasta police are going to kick my door in and haul me away. So, I, yeah, anyway, I'm just, I'm going to babble on. So you should just feel free to jump on any part of that that's, that speaks to you. Okay, um, um, I'm extremely interested in authenticity. Um, and this will take me into my, my first book, because of the, the lack of the use of the word and the lack of concern about it with, um, with food, mm-hmm. prior to the, um, the economic miracle, which took off in the 1960s, mm-hmm. okay, and, and with that, you have a, you're having a very strong association of tourism and um, and the economy and pride again of of, of Italy, mm-hmm. okay, um, but the concern about a- authenticity in food before that was nil. Right, it didn't exist as a concept. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, because people ate what they had in front of them. You 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 ate what you had, and then if if, if, if there was, and this is what's what I what I see is happening is that. There was a constant evolution of food, an evolution of dishes. A, recipes were never the same. Mm-hmm. And then when you, you get people who, who want to pay for a heritage item, mm-hmm. then at that point, you need to stop the evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, this needs to be done in that particular way. Mm-hmm. My restaurant makes it much more authentic than yours does. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't put, then there's the word can't, mm-hmm. well, you can't put that in, in your Amatrishana. Right. If you do, well, then you've got to call it something else, and right. all of that so, stuff. So is, is right. this sort of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, where the minute enough tourists start paying attention, that things collapse into a particular state and have to stay there? Is that sort of well, what you're getting at? Right, right. And so I'm, I'm, um, I've been doing some research about this particular thing recently um, with regard to what do you do, in, in, and this is a particularly uh, Italian thing because of the love of Italian food and the insistence from the rest of the world that certain Italian dishes are made in, in, in an absolute kind of way, mm-hmm. okay? And um, when tourists come in and they are a large chunk of who's, who's supporting restaurants sure, here, okay? Absolutely. When they come in, they have expectations which are born of what they saw on television and, and etc. Um, I'm sure as you see with, with your, they, they come to Italy, people who come to Italy for the first time 
are very surprised about what Italian food is now mm-hmm. in comparison to their TV ideas of it. Absolutely. Okay? Yeah. But that a chef is locked into those ideas if he she wants to make continued making money mm-hmm. and pulling in that foreign dollar or yen or whatever it is. Yeah. And and um I'm doing research right now interviewing chefs about um how is it that you can find a creative space within that kind of that the weight of in in particularly in Rome I'm doing this the weight of history yeah 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 and Roman Roman cuisine is very conservative but but right and and um but history also means something extremely limited mm-hmm. because Roman culinary history is 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 very long and you can dip into a a, a, a Piscius or Piccius how we were to um Maestro Martino Bartolomeo Scappi those are those are cookbooks but also other kinds of things are going on Adoboni then wrote her her really beautiful um uh, cookbook. I mean, who, who is it that's going to go to a restaurant and eat stewed long with peas? Right. Okay, those are Roman dishes. Yeah. Um sliced pieces of of coagulated chicken blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a favorite. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where are those? So so even history has been refashioned into into modern tastes. And and a a Roman menu like I used to complain when I lived in San, um, the same thing. It's it's all the same thing. You've got to have your peach in the culture, da, 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 da. and then you have a few dishes that are outside of that. Yeah. But you've got to have those because that's what people want. Mm-hmm. So the authentic part, if you take that word apart, and look at at it historically as well. His um, authenticity, which then, of course, has its other branches. So, but I'm, I mean, I'm going to simplify history a little bit myself here. But um, with the separation of the church and Protestantism and and Catholicism, you had people looking inside themselves, and that was authenticity in finding out what is it that is simply ritual here and what is it that it's real mm-hmm. we want to get at the real mm-hmm. we want to get at that real experience okay yeah. um well what is it that is a, that is real about stopping uh, the evolution of cuisine in its tracks mm-hmm. reproducing it the same way in every restaurant right. um and where there is where there is nothing real and then the very the, the theater around it as well of being in the rustic place with a you know maybe um they, they certainly don't do the mandolins playing anymore no, but they don't. but uh, there is an element of vegas show where it's the same thing every night for like an infinite an indefinite run in the right, same theater right, right? right and you go for that experience exactly but exactly. at what point is it just a caricature of some yeah. And when you're when you're in and out, mm-hmm. you want that. You want to take photographs of that stuff, put mm-hmm. it on Facebook so that all of your friends can be um, duly envious and give you likes. Right. Of your authentic Italian experience. And, and you are verifying as well through that that you're getting um, – you have 
earned your cultural capital. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you've got a, a pictorial evidence of that. Sure. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and and that's got to be difficult as a chef, and so that's that's kind of the work that I'm that I'm addressing right now um, in in Rome in particular. Mm-hmm. Who Because because I uh, I'm very interested in what Sarah Cicolini's doing at Santa Bellata in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think she's really found a way to thread that needle. Okay. Okay. Um, um, and like, I I think Tommaso Panestri is also doing some pretty good work in that regard. Um, and I think there are others. Those are the two that really jump out. I think Sarah's by far the most sort of, even though she's from Abruzzo, I think she's sort of the most Roman in spirit. Okay, she's very, she's, it's, it's very Roman in spirit. And um, I am, have, am setting up a, an interview with her. Good. But, but these young chefs also, like her, Retro Bortega. Yeah, I have um, there too. Tom, Tommaso Tonioni at Palaccio, mm-hmm. uh, Pagliaccio, Pagliaccio. No, um, which is not a place that I can afford to go to, but mm. um, have interviewed him as well. And getting out of they're certainly in a different category then. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not doing the Carbonara, Matriciana, Grisha. They're not. Um, they don't have to. No. Right. Um, but, but. That's much more international it, style. They just right. are cooking in Rome. Right, but so because because uh, Genovese is, I mean, despite his name, is French. Right. So I, I don't want to kind of give away my future work, but don't give uh, away. No, you don't have to. <laughs> but how? Yeah, how there? Uh, that's a fascinating thing because also authenticity and the word author and the idea of it being um, real and a personal uh, introspective look mm-hmm. has to include. Um, evolution. Yeah, yeah. And and so authenticity should be. Um, I'm taking what's there and making it real for me. And as I am also a, an authority, mm-hmm. using all of the different kind of words around that um, around that that concept. Yeah. Um, I'm an authority because I have I have earned my wings through um, through schooling, through experience, sure. through. Also, in the case of Arcangelo Dandini, for example, he's um, a, one of several generations of, of restaurateurs, mm-hmm. right? So, um, in some way, you're an authority, and then you have the right to move authentic food onwards. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's what I would like to see in Italy, where... Sure, there's certainly a place for the um, restaurant slash museum yeah. where you go and they just stamp out sure. food well, for you. Well, and there's an infinite supply of tour buses pulling up in front. So right. you, that's a good business model, right, too. Right, 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 right. That's a service that exists and a need that exists to be filled. So. Right, right. But, but for, to me, what's always interesting is, yeah, find, watching, and it's why, honestly, I started this podcast, is because I'm most interested in how creative people yeah. are managed to find the path, carve a path on the basis of their creativity and frankly, a level of stubbornness and unwillingness to do some bullshit job for someone that they don't like, right? And so I I really admire people who are able to pull that off because it creates a more interesting culture. The work product is a lot more fascinating to to appreciate. Um, You and I are roughly the same age and which means we came up sort of during the height of postmodernism. And I was in art school where it was as thick as, you know, the air we breathe. And, um, and I always chafed against it, especially in grad school. Mm-hmm. I even had a professor once scoff during a critique at the thing that I was showing that week. And he said, oh, well, this is just beautiful painting, as if it was like, 
Right. Like, what's the fucking point of doing this, you <laughs> right. asshole? This yeah. isn't smart. This is just pretty. Yeah. Anyway, so, but you know, so I hated postmodernism in school uh-huh. because I thought it was really arbitrary and everybody in the world, like, all you have to do is watch cartoons as a kid and you understand how semiotics work. It's not complicated. It, we all, in this media environment, everybody has a master's in semiotics. Mm-hmm. It's just beaten into you by the TV or everything else now. But as a cook, especially as a home cook, who was not really anchored in any particular tradition because I was really just a suburban American kid. Um, I mean, I have ethnic origins, but my house was not particularly religious, ethnic, you know, there wasn't a a whole lot of heritage at play there. Um, And so I find that as a cook, I actually love the concept of collage and pastiche and appropriation. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge fan of it and remixes and mashups and all of these, you know, relatively new ways of making work. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it super exciting, invigorating, liberating, all the good things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I, I think that kind of ties into what you're saying. Like, I don't have a tradition to uphold, but I right, think having right. access to all of these principles, concepts, and the, the open source nature of cooking now, I think that the really smart and talented ones who we're talking about, right. they are able to pull just enough of that in mm-hmm. to kind of liven it up and, and move it forward. So right. it's really exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... Um... <laughs> I kind of admire those people who, uh, <laughs> what's the expression that you used? We're doing all of that same thing that we were supposed to do because they, they made lots of money and I certainly didn't. So, uh, right, oh, yeah. so, so right, there's, there's, um, there's something about what that is and that making money and knowing how to do that that I never figured out because I need to, um, I need to investigate these sorts of things like the interviewing, okay, so my first book is um, about um, the, the, the fascist era mm-hmm. and food during the fascist era, finding women who were as old as I could possibly find them and still lucid, mm-hmm. able to talk about, uh, and, and, and I've been a little bit criticized for this, and I'll take that on, on board, but... I remember growing up in what we ate, mm-hmm. and I know that they remember growing up in what they ate. Sure. Um, what I don't remember is where I left my keys, where I left my glasses, my phone, <laughs> and what maybe even what yeah. I had yesterday. Right, and what eat. the password but, is um, to this site you're trying to get to. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, the value of oral history in, insofar as not just what you remember, but the way you remember and the way it's been carried through time to now for um, how you look back on it. Um, and, and that's all valid stuff um, that, that went into, into creating this book that shows kind of the cutoff then between moving on and creating Italian cuisine right. as an Italian cuisine kind right. of thing. With, with the war and the post-war period with the being, war being that, that right, sort of right, fulcrum, being that, that turning that, that, right. Um, but because, and I know that you, um, you mentioned Rachel Roddy, and, and she's got a very romantic approach, um, does it well, other people don't do that as well, and it's so transparently about money. Um, well, it gets cloying. I mean, it, it becomes, you know, under the Tuscan sun, the, 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 the food version, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, you come here, you have the epiphany, your life changes, and here's the recipe for the artichoke, you know? Right, right, right. And, you know, but so, so, as with the tour bus restaurants, it's like it's a need that it, it's a market that exists, so you can go that way. It's not interesting. Right, and, 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 that's, and that is kind of how, how 
I do my research, what I like to write about, needing, I believe, needing to keep more in mind that, yeah, all that's going on, and, and, but I do get up and I see that landscape and, and you know, and uh, remembering also about loving Italy because I do love Italy. Yeah, of course you do. Um, it shows. I do love Italy, and, and, but that's, and that's the way that I love Italy, which is in, in that um, not romanticizing things and finding the reality of it fascinating mm-hmm. instead of picking out those few recipes and glorifying them. But um, yeah. let's look at what those people were, were eating then in a whole array of um, socioeconomic situations, geographical situations. I, I love that. I love mm-hmm. that about Italy. And the same thing that, that I have the same approach with, with Rome, um, starting with the pre-Romans and moving through, through modern day, mm-hmm. of looking at the exploitation and inequality of, of food and what was going on. And um, as well, again, with immigration, one of the things that I love about the topic of Rome, it started with immigration. Aeneas coming from um, Troy, mm-hmm. landing on the shores, and this is where we're going to stay. Right. And then the Latins there was who also omen, came wasn't there? down. There was some omen that came there through. Was, which... there, was a, there was a poem about uh, Virgil in which they have their, their first meal. And they, um, they're so hungry that they eat the trenchers. That's right. Which they eat the, the plates. Right. Yeah. They eat the plates, right. Um, so, and that gets that gets. And that was in a prophecy, and, and so they're... And the, but the plate, they eat their plates, and the plates, are, though, are made of bread. Still bread, yeah. So, sure. so um, and so that was part of the prophecy. When we're so hungry that we eat our plates, we have found our true home, and so, and so they parked right, there. Right, right. And they met in with them. They blended with the Latins, and then um, Romulus and, and Remus, and and that was also about the founding of Rome. He needed to pull as many folks in as he could. Whoever you are, whatever it is you're doing, um, doesn't matter if you know prostitutes and the just anyone come to Rome and let's make Rome. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and the history of Rome is all that. Yeah. So um, the, the different groups and tribes coming in, you move that up through the, the explosion of the Roman Empire and everyone just piling into Rome, mm-hmm. leaving Rome and, and the, the, the income and the outgo of that, um, moving up through Christianity with you know, a, a series of popes who are not from there bringing in their entourage, in addition to the beginning then of, um, of pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. So you've got the pilgrims coming in and all of those different countries who were coming in and, and hospitality in Rome, which was kind of nil. And so they all set up their own little, their own little um, hospices or hospices are probably in the, the hostels, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. for their own nationalities. Um, there's never a point where Rome stops it being international and being about mobility right. and about immigration. Right. Um, the the bar the so-called barbarians as well sure. coming in and mixing and staying. Mm-hmm. 
um, staying and not continuing to be barbaric, but right. farming and mm-hmm. mixing in with the rest, and right. and and so Putting it's down all roots so much about yeah, right, yeah. and which also brings in a, well, what is then authentic food, authentic right. Roman food, and authentic Italian food? And it was one of my favorite things when I first moved to Rome, but also every time I come back, um, you know, the ruins and and the the various monuments in various stages of of crumbling, um, they're not just beautiful. They're also this great sort of perpetual memento mori everywhere you go. And so it doesn't matter how hard you work to maintain a tradition, any kind of tradition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sooner or later, whatever the next version of the Visigoths is, is going to come and fuck it all up. That's right. And then from those ashes, some new things will spring. And and it's just, it's always being reinvented and digested and spat out. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, So I think that's, uh, I think that really is the sort of great lesson when it comes to, yeah, this question of, you know, Mm. authentic. Mm. or whatever and look I am the first person to say that I love a good amatriciano oh, you know oh yeah it's what's not food. to love it's fantastic right, right. 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 but then when you, but when you have those <clears throat> menus and, and chefs in a, a mestiere in their, in their trade that they can't move out of that it becomes it becomes suffocating um, if you consider as well uh, I mean, even just kind of moving on through history and you have the Grand Tour, um, budget tourism then starts coming in. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, the unification of Italy, which brought down a French, because he was French, I mean, let's just say it, yeah. brought down a French king who came with his French chefs and you were not allowed to cook at the Quirinale right. if you were not French or, or, or right. at least Piemontese. Right. Okay? Well, but this is after... Um what was it? 1870. Right, but before yeah. that, it was when in the Middle Ages, wasn't it? When or the, when was it that Maria de Medici moved to France? Oh, and then right, and took okay. all the cooks and, right. and, so and she, scientists and right, poets right, right. and everybody with her. Right, right, exactly. So, um, so then you have uh, Francesco Leonardi who wrote his his opus. Um, the, the modern Apicius in 1790. Mm-hmm. Now, he had had his experience from, um, he was Roman, went outside, had his experience, brought it, brought it back into Rome. The same thing with who are the people who are considered the, the great cookbook writers of, um, of Rome. Maestro Martino, Platina, who basically took Maestro Martino's work and made it, made his, but, but from Platina, writing in Latin, it became accessible outwards. There's always an outwards, but also Bartolomeo Scappi, they were from outside, coming to Rome, made Rome their home, that was where they were cooking for the Cardinalizia, for mm-hmm. the, the papal court. Um, people like um, Bockenheim, Bockenheim in the, in the 1400s, with um, Pope Martin V after, the, the papacy had returned to Rome then, wrote this fascinating book about what all kinds of different people are, will, should be fed when they arrive, depending on um, their social class, on their, whatever their job is, whatever their country is. It's a fascinating book because after every recipe, he says who that recipe is going to be good for. Hmm. Okay, so you get this really intense sociological idea. But, but because Rome was always, and, and still is, it has the, the highest number of immigrants in Italy mm-hmm. um, today. Well, so you kind of come full circle because you're back into this sort of sociological element yeah, and, the, yeah. and the immigrant experience. And, but I mean, I love the way that you've, at the end of the day, what the work that you're doing as, you know, as scholarly and 
thorough as it is, um, it still very, very much directly connects to your experience and things that you're trying to unpack for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think that's one of the reasons, um, you know, there is a warmth to your writing that I really like. And Thank I'm, you. Um, well, you know, because listen, it's easy to write in an academic way that just sounds like it's for other academics, right? And you, you, um, you pack a lot of information into prose that nonetheless still sort of, you know, sounds like... You know the way you talk, or the that that it's clearly personal for you in a certain way. It, yeah, yes, and that's yes, yes. Uh, I like it when that comes through because that's a that's a that's a harder trick to pull off. Um, so the you think the memoir is maybe going to be the next thing? I realize you just had this book come out, so but you. Uh, um, um, yeah, I just had this book come out, but as books go, I handed in the manuscript um, March of. 2018 mm-hmm. and then March of 2019 yeah, the book comes, comes out. out yeah that's how it works so um so you're already pretty far down the path for the next no I've got a I've got a um big myth myth buster book that I'm going to do before the memoir okay so um that I'm not ready to unveil yet okay uh but right but because I'm working up towards establishing that writer's voice as well and I, and that's that's the voice that I want to have mm-hmm. so that um a my reader whoever that might be knows that they're going to come to my book with a a certain amount of trust that mm-hmm. I know my uh, one that I know my stuff but also that I'm going to speak to you in a certain sort of way yeah um and Neither dumb down nor bash you over the head with my erudition or right. anything. Right, so, right, right, right. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, great. I can't wait. So, yeah. Thanks for talking. Yeah, yeah. It's Thanks really nice to see you again. It's very nice to see you. Karima Moyer. Her new book, The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome, is out now. Her first book, Chewing the Fat, An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita, has been out since 2015. She's Karima Moyer on Instagram. I'm cookblog on Instagram. Cookpod.net. Music by my son Milo Barrett. Smilob.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. Please give this five stars. And please tune in next week for another conversation with somebody smart, talented, and above all, interesting.